Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory, or even the quality of an older person's healthcare. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specializing in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In today's episode, we'll be talking about long-term care insurance and other ways to get help covering the cost of services that many older adults need at some point later in life. My guest is Howard Gleckman, who is a senior fellow at the Urban Institute a nonprofit research organization that focuses on economic and social policy research. And he's an expert on how policy and tax issues affect older adults, family caregivers, and long-term care. He is also the author of the book, Caring for Our Parents, a book inspired in part by his own experience caring for his aging parents. And he's also being a veteran journalist. He writes an excellent weekly column for Forbes magazine in which he covers programs and policies that affect older adults and families. So Howard's columns have for a long time been one of my favorite sources of information and insight regarding a variety of aging care issues. And we actually had him on the podcast for episode 59 to talk about long-term care insurance and other ways to pay for the care that older adults often need. So that was about a year ago. And since then, there have been some interesting developments in long-term care financing and in policy. In particular, the state of Washington recently passed a public long-term care insurance plan And also, there have been some recent changes to Medicare regulations that might allow some Medicare plans to start covering certain long-term care services. I'm delighted to have Howard Gleckman back with us today to tell us about these recent initiatives that could lead to more affordable late-life care for older adults. Howard, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you. Okay. Well, last time, we started by having you tell us a little bit more about how you became interested in the care of older adults. And I think I'm going to refer the audience to episode 59 for that. It's a great story, though. I love your story, and your book is very good, too. But maybe for today, we can start still by coming back to the basics of what do we mean when we say long-term care? I want to make sure we're really clear about that, because I think often it's a term that you and I, as people in the field, are very familiar with, but the public may not quite know what we have in mind. So what kinds of services are we talking about, and why do most older adults need to understand what this is? Sure. So the reason most older adults need to understand what it is, is 70% of people will need some level of long-term care or long-term supports and services, sometimes called uh, after age 65. And 50% of people will need uh, a high enough level of that care that they would be eligible for long-term care insurance or they'd be eligible for Medicaid. That's a, that's a lot of assistance. So what is it? So long-term care is the support you need to live the best possible quality of life you can. It's not medical care. It's personal support. It might be a home health aid. It might be a grab bar in the bathroom. Uh, It might be help eating. It might be transportation. A whole range of those things that help us do the the daily activities that we need to manage every day and that hopefully make us uh, live the best possible quality of life we can Uh, particularly if we're suffering from some chronic conditions. Most of that care is the thing that people often 
misunderstand. Most of that care, probably 85% of us get that care at home. When I talk to people uh, and I, I say long-term care, and I say, what do you first think about? And they say nursing home. The nursing home is not where we get most of the care. It's mostly at home. And most of the care we get is from family members. So this is, uh, I think it's so important that, to emphasize this. As you said, that it's not, it's not nursing homes or assisted living, although that is a place where people can get help with those, you know, as you mentioned, those daily activities, right? That I think as adults, we kind of take for granted that we're able to do them. But if people become disabled in some way, they might have difficulty walking or getting dressed or bathing or getting to or from the bathroom or even with certain other tasks that are just necessary to live independently at home, like groceries, meal preparation, getting to and from your appointments, managing your finances. And so when people need help with those things, as you said, usually family or sometimes friends step in and start providing that help so that people can keep living at home for uh, as long as possible or until the, the need gets to be more than, than family or others can provide, right? That's exactly right. And it's, and it's important, you know, to recognize that this isn't medical care. You know, it works closely with medical care, but it isn't medical care. It's provided by different people and it's paid for in different ways. And that's what confuses people and, and, and kind of creates so many challenges. So we all know that if you're over 65, you're probably enrolled in Medicare uh, and Medicare will pay for your health care. But Medicare will not pay for these supports and services that in many cases are at least as important and sometimes more important uh, than medical treatment. Right. And I often hear people saying, but, you know, my older parent needs help taking their medications. Isn't that medical? But that helping somebody take their medications is, for whatever reason, not considered medical care. That's right. The, the medications themselves are, but, but, but the process of administering them isn't. And it gets, it, it, there's a lot of things that happen in that kind of funny gray area. And it's, it's one of the challenges that policy people have. And it's a, and it, it's a subject of, of just endless confusion for people who are trying to put together the systems that they need to manage uh, their old age and particularly their frailty. This is a, this is a very, as you well know, this is a very complicated thing to do. It's particularly challenging when you're doing it at the same time you're suffering from some chronic medical condition, you have some frailty, and maybe you have some cognitive impairment. And trying to manage all of this is, is, is very difficult. I, I remember when I interviewed a woman uh, who, was, who was the adult daughter of someone who needed these supports, and she referred to herself as the cruise director. Mm. And, you know, there are constantly things that you had to manage. Something would come up. You know, you had a home health aide and the home health aide couldn't show up that day because they were sick or because their car broke down. What do you do? You're supposed to go to the doctor and the ride to the doctor didn't come. What do you do? These things happen. You're living this life in sort of constant crisis. And the great challenge is to figure out a way to anticipate those crises, put together a system to manage all of it. That takes time, it takes a certain amount of, of uh, research, and it takes money. Right. Yeah, because often um, we sort of live in a different time. I think back in the day, people, you know, one lived closer to their adult children and often had more of them. And there was often just a lot of, you know, family around to pitch in. 
and now we have we have smaller families and we're more spread out and so a lot of um family members find that it's hard to provide the help that an older relative needs while still maintaining their job and their other responsibilities and so they start looking to uh can somebody else do it and and often that is that is not covered by medicare as you were saying and you have to pay for it and that cost can add up that's exactly right you know there there are some interesting alternatives faith communities are trying to work together to see if congregants can support one another there are organizations called senior villages where people in neighborhoods can get together and try to support one another and they can put together volunteers with people who need support and and there there are lots of different models that we're trying and and some of them are working pretty well but they're all very small and in the end at least right now it's it's about the support you get from your family and your close friends as you say or it's support that you have to buy. Right, right. We actually had Andrew Sharlack, Berkeley professor, who has studied the village model on the podcast for episode 74. And although it's a wonderful model that brings a lot to people, he said that they have had to scale back their ambitions. And that initially the thought was that these, you know, these communities would keep people from having to go to nursing homes. And in fact, you know, those communities are great for providing people with social support and a lot of of helpful assistance, and they have not been able to substitute for, you know, what I might describe as the heavy lifting that families are often doing themselves, or that you might have to pay for somebody to come into the home and provide. Now, earlier, you said something that I thought was interesting. You said that 70% of people, I think it was over age 65, are going to need some help with this kind of ongoing living assistance or what we technically call long-term care supports and services and that 50 of them would have a level of need that's enough to trigger long-term care insurance policy if they had one what is the difference between those two what makes the difference between needing help and needing enough of it that that uh, if you had a long-term care insurance policy it would kick in so long-term care insurance policies generally are built around a model that says when you need assistance with at least three activities of daily living, and not to get too technical about it, but activities of daily living are, as you mentioned before, uh, activities like bathing or transferring from the bed to a chair or going to a bathroom or eating or dressing. If you, if you need help with three of those or more, that is sufficient to trigger a long-term care insurance benefit. And uh, it's similar to the requirements that states have that would make you eligible for Medicaid long-term supports and service benefits. Uh, you might also think of it as if you need a nursing home level of care. Sometimes it's referred to that way. But it's a fairly significant uh, need. And the chances are 50-50 that after age 65, uh, you will need that level of need. And, and then there are more people, probably 70% of people over 65, who will need some support. They won't need that significant level. Maybe they'll only need help uh, showering, mm -hmm. but they'll be able to do everything else at home. They may do it more slowly, uh, but they'll be able to do it. So that's really the difference. That's what that trigger is. It's that three activities that they really, and, and, and when researchers look at it, that's usually where they, they, they kind of, create this this break between people who need some supports and services and some people who need a high level of supports and services. And since you mentioned activities of daily living, and we certainly use those in geriatrics, and as you said, it's, it's, it's walking or getting up from a chair, feeding yourself, 
getting dressed. And, and I sometimes refer to those as, you know, the skills you learn in, in early childhood that people have often learned by, certainly by age five, if not before, but there's this other set of skills that in our technical parlance, we call instrumental activities of daily living. And those are the ones you learn as a teenager that help you live independently, like grocery shopping and meal preparation and managing finances and managing transportation. And so those are also important to living independently. And so where do those fall in, in terms of eligibility for help that might be provided either by an insurance policy or by Medicaid? So generally, and so Medicaid varies from state to state. Some states do take into account the need for support with activities of daily, for incidental activities of daily living. Other states don't. Long-term care insurance policies don't, unless the reason why you cannot uh, uh, do those activities is because of cognitive impairment. Most long-term care insurance policies do have a provision that says that if if you are severely cognitively impaired, and what that means is a another long conversation, but if you are severely cognitively impaired, then you, you also would trigger long-term care insurance. So it may be possible for someone, for example, to, to be able to still get up out of bed, to still be able to uh, dress themselves or, or bathe themselves uh, with some level of cognitive impairment. Now, they may dress themselves inappropriately. They may forget to bathe themselves for, for you know, many days, but they physically can do it. Yes. Well, more worrisome, they may be unable to get their food or pre prepare it. And so, yeah, so cognitive impairments are problems with memory or thinking. And if they're severe enough to keep you from tending to those daily life tasks, including those teenager ones that you need to live independently, then that often qualifies people for a diagnosis of a dementia, which might be due to Alzheimer's or another underlying cause. And so, yeah, I think it's important to bring that up because I know that's a, a really common underlying reason that people start to struggle with maintaining their independence on their own and start to need at least a little bit, eventually often a lot of extra help and support from, from other people. So this is an important issue. I mean, I think, you know, uh, only as, as you said, uh, lots of people are going to need at least a little help, if not a lot at some point, but it is not covered by Medicare. So, so when people need help with this, and family and friends can't provide it, who usually pays for these kinds of, uh, of supports? Most frequently, nobody. Most frequently, people do, do not have paid assistance. They manage the best they can with their family and their friends and their neighbors. And often that means not managing very well at all. And the, the paradox here, of course, is, is that when people are unable to manage their activities of daily living, their lives at home, it accelerates the problems. <laughs> it accelerates the problems. It makes it more likely they're going to go to the hospital. It makes it more likely they're going to be admitted to the hospital. And they're going to end up costing the system more money than had the system provided some uh, prophylactic support uh, before they had the acute crisis. But that's not how we think. Uh, we, have, we have taken long-term care and medical care, and, and for the most part, put them in two completely separate buckets. And, and it's very difficult to get people to think about this holistically. Uh, if only they would, uh, we would just, just have just tremendous improvement in both the quality of life of older adults and we would save a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Right. So usually nobody pays for it and it's 
uh, kind of patched together by family and friends. Another option is that families do sometimes start paying for help, hiring someone to come to the house, right? Mm-hmm. And then there are a few other options that some people are able to access. Can you talk about them? Sure. So, so you know, the, the, the first thing, of course, is savings. You know, do, do you have some savings? Can you, can you pay for this care out of either retirement savings or, uh, or you know, maybe in your Social Security, you can get some income. There's your home. You know, can you use a reverse mortgage or some other vehicle to tap into your home equity so that you have some and use that to pay uh, for care? Maybe you have an annuity or some other insurance product that would help. Uh, a relatively small number of people have private long-term care insurance, and, and that can help. Uh, can be very helpful if you have it and if the policies are generous enough. Um, and, and then there are some new models, which we can talk about maybe in a couple of minutes, where Medicare, for the first time, is beginning to pay for a limited amount of supports and services, but only through Medicare Advantage plans, uh, which, are, which is Medicare Managed Care. It's not being paid for through traditional Medicare, but it is if you're in a if you're in managed care plan or maybe if you're in managed care plan. Yeah, I definitely want to talk more about that because that's such an exciting development. And then I guess a few of the other options I was thinking about is that Medicaid does pay in many states for some form of long-term care, but you have to spend down and become eligible, right? That's right. You, you have to be, essentially, you have to be impoverished. Right. Uh, the, the rules vary from state to state, but in general, you cannot have more than $2,000 in financial assets. And you cannot make more than about seven hundred fifty or eight hundred dollars a month. And you can't have given away too much money in the five years before, and it's that's right. You're not, you're not allowed to give the money away. You can't. You can't artificially spend that. If you have a spouse who's living in the community, you can keep your house. Uh, if you don't, if you're a widow, for example, and there's, there's there's no spouse, you have to basically sell your house and spend that money too before you can become eligible for Medicaid. So Medicaid is available. It's a safety net program. It's wonderful that it's there, but it's available for a relatively small number of people. And the benefits that you receive from Medicare vary from state to state, but even in the best of states, the the benefits are not great. And then Medicaid does often end up being the the payer of last resort when people are in, in nursing homes, but that's that's a sort of you know outcome that people are usually trying to to avoid. And then I know the VA has uh, some benefits too, but I think it's it's often hard to to access them. So so in short, there's often not a lot of help available beyond one's own personal resources and family resources in covering this. But you did mention that you know a minority of people have long-term care insurance, and this is a topic that you've studied and worked on a lot. The the question of long-term care insurance and whether that can meet this need. So, so it exists, but it's, it seems to me it's fairly underused right now. Can, can you tell us briefly why, why this is, why, why that hasn't taken off you know, as a way of meeting this need the way private health insurance has? Sure. The, re- the really brief answer is it's too expensive. Uh, the, the slightly longer answer is that uh, 15 years ago, in the, in the early 2000s, this was a product that looked like it was going to generate a lot of enthusiasm. In 2002, the industry sold about 750,000 policies. There was a lot of interest in selling it through workplaces, in creating what people in the long-term care insurance industry would like to call the middle market, 
being able to sell this to just middle income, ordinary folks. Mm -hmm. But um, a few things went wrong. One of them is that the insurance companies vastly underestimated their benefit costs. Uh, they, they did not realize uh, that people who went to claim would be receiving benefits for as long as they were. They often sold in the early days lifetime policies. Mm. And um, we talked about dementia a few minutes ago. Dementia accounts for about half of the claims in dollars. And as you know, dementia can go on for a very long time. People can require a very high level of, of support for a very long time. Well, certainly for a, a few to several years. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. So an insurance company that was selling a lifetime policy or a policy that covered maybe 10 years of, of, uh, of need ended up uh, uh, shelling out an enormous amount of money for this care. And and you add up all of the beneficiaries and a lot of insurance companies just stop selling policies. The other, the other problem that insurance companies are having is that their business model is that they collect premiums from people for a long time, generally people who buy long-term care insurance buy in their 50s, and they probably won't go to claim until they're in their 80s. So they'll be paying premiums for 25 or 30 years. And the business model that insurance companies have is they took that money and they invested. And then they use the investment income to pay the benefits and to make a profit. The problem is that they're required by state regulators to invest that money in bonds. And interest rates have been historically low for over a decade. And as a result of that, they are earning much less income on those investments than expected. So in short, what happens is the insurance companies are earning less income and they're paying more in claims and the number is just worn adding up. So most insurance companies have stopped selling. Uh, 20 years ago, there were 150 companies, 125 companies that were selling. Now there are probably 15. And the number of people buying has fallen from 750,000 in 2002 to about 60,000 uh, today. And that, those, are, those are traditional policies. Now there is another kind of long-term care insurance policy which they sometimes call combo products or hybrid products. And those are, those are basically long-term care insurance riders that are added on to uh, whole life policies or annuities. And those are a little more popular. They probably sold 260,000 of those policies last year, but they are for a limited number of people. In order to buy an annuity that really makes any sense, you probably have to have $100,000 to invest. And uh, most financial advisors would tell you never to invest more than a third of your assets in an annuity. So what that means is you need people who have $300,000 in savings to even think about buying a reasonably sized annuity. And there's just not very many people like that. So the result is long-term care insurance, instead of being this product for middle-income people, is really limited to a product for high-income people. To give you a sense of what they cost, a 60-year-old woman who wants to buy a medium benefit policy, and that's say $160 a day for three years, which is not a particularly generous policy. So you're 60, you want to buy $160 a day of coverage for three years with 3% inflation protection, that policy would cost you about $4,000. 
And for most middle-income people, that's just not money they have. It's $4,000 a year that they have to pay in premiums? That's right, yeah. And they have to pay that $4,000 a year. You said they're 60 and they might have to pay it for 20 years, 25 years before needing it. That's right. And it's very likely that that premium will go up. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the history of long-term care insurance policies has been that uh, they increase premiums pretty significantly over a few years. Because then, you know, if you pay $4,000 a year, you know, even without the premium going up for, for 20 years, you've spent 80000 That's right. And in, in that case, it's sort of seeming like you could sock it away <laughs> if you had the discipline to do so. Uh, that's, the, that's the key. So I'm often asked that, well, well couldn't I just self-insure? Couldn't I just save the money? And, mm-hmm. um, and rather than giving insurance companies the, the, the commission that they think, the extra money that they think, couldn't I just save it? And the answer is absolutely you could. Uh, it's totally right. You could do it. But the truth of the matter is most of us won't. Mm-hmm. And, and if you're going to save it, you can't start saving it at 60. You need to start saving for retirement at 30. And, and if, you did, if you did that, if you save, you know, 5 or, or 6% of your wages starting at age 30 uh, until you stop working, say, at 70, uh, you have a nice nest egg and you could afford to pay for your long-term care in old age, and you can afford to pay for your medical care in old age. Mm-hmm. But most of us just won't do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it it's, can be hard to have that much foresight and, and discipline. So really, uh, what you have been writing about for the last few years is how the private long-term care insurance market is, you know, has just not been able to meet this need that people have for some way to make the cost of getting these services that people need affordable in late life. So let's now talk about the, you know, before we talk about the recent interesting development in Washington state. So when the private market isn't able to do something, we sometimes turn to the the public sector, right? And the government to ask whether that could meet the need. But the federal government doesn't currently offer long-term care insurance to most Americans, but they did try to set something like that up a few years ago, now several years ago, as part of the Affordable Care Act. Can you tell us about that? So I feel like that kind of hangs in the background right now of the conversations. So it was, it's a very interesting story and a very instructive one. So the, the program is called the Class Act. And the idea was that you would get a benefit, and they contemplated a benefit of $50 or $75 a day for life as soon as you needed a high enough level of long-term care. And they use that same uh, benefit trigger with private insurance. You need help with three activities a day. Uh, as soon as you needed that, you would get 70, 50 or $75 a day for life. It was in the Affordable Care Act. Congress passed the law. The Obama administration tried to turn it into an actual functioning program, and they couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. And the problem was that the Class Act was a voluntary program. You didn't have to enroll. You could enroll if you wanted to. And the sponsors of it made that decision because, frankly, it was just a political choice. They didn't think they could get a mandatory program from Congress. The problem is a voluntary program means that most people will not enroll. The people who will enroll are the people who are most likely to need the insurance. And that makes the premiums really high. That's the same problem that private insurance has. Insurance companies talk about the risk pool. And and you want to have a very broad risk pool. You want to have, it's insurance. You want to have a lot of people who buy the insurance who won't actually need it and they will subsidize people who will need it. The only people who are buying the insurance are people who need it. There's nobody to subsidize them. 
and the only place the money can come from is in premiums. So what the Obama administration realized was with this voluntary system, the premiums would be unaffordable. And they just never tried to implement it. They basically just walked away from it and Congress eventually repealed it. So the lesson that a lot of policy experts learned from that was, actually there were two lessons. One of the lessons was any public program needs to be mandatory, needs to be universal or near universal. And the other lesson they learned is it can't be comprehensive. If you're gonna provide insurance from the day somebody uh, has a high level of frailty until the day they die, it's just unaffordable. That's like those lifetime policies that the long-term care insurance companies tried to sell and realized they couldn't make work. Government can't either. So, so what the policy people have been thinking about ever since is a mandatory program paid for by, let's say, a payroll tax. So everybody participant, which is the way Medicare works. And they, they thought about covering either the first period of time after you have a, 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 a need, which is sometimes called a front-end policy. Like the first few years or something. The first, yeah, the first few years. And that's what Washington State did, which is probably part of the first year. Or a catastrophic program, which is the one that, frankly, I prefer. And that says that you're responsible for covering the first couple of years of need. But then after that, if you have a true catastrophic need that you cannot buy insurance for, there's no other alternative than the federal government ought to step in or the state government ought to step in and provide you with some insurance because there's no other place for you to get it. I, I, I worked in, uh, a few years ago on, a, on an, organization, an organization called the Long-Term Care Financing Collaborative. And what we did was we put together a group of conservatives and liberals and people from the uh, provider community, uh, people from nursing home and home care business, uh, people from insurance business, consumers. And we all sat around a table for three years. And at the end of the three years, we came up with a consensus plan, which in fact was a public catastrophic program. And if you make it universal, if everybody has to pay, uh, the costs are very modest. And we found that, you know, Washington State found that, even though they went with a little, bit, a little different model. To give you just some sense, we calculated that a $100 a day benefit, that you would have to wait for a couple of years. So you'd be responsible for paying for your care, either with your home equity or your savings or using your family, whatever it was. You'd be responsible for the first couple of years. But then after that, you'd get $100 a day for life uh, from this public benefit. And we estimated that that would, that would require a uh, payroll tax increase uh, on workers only, not on employers, but on workers only, of about six-tenths of 1%. So when you think about a median income a worker, a uh, median income household these days, which is they make about $60,000, $62,000 a year, the six-tenths of a percent uh, increase in uh, the payroll tax is less than $400 a year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can, you can compare that with a sixty-year-old woman who buys a long-term care policy, and she's paying four thousand dollars a year. Right. Yeah. No, that's that's an impressive uh, comparison. Well, why don't you tell us now about what happened in Washington State? So Washington State is a really interesting story. For the last couple of years, they have been trying to get a public long-term care insurance benefit, 
they almost got it last year and the thing died at the last minute. Interestingly enough, because it was opposed by a lot of activists and organizations like AARP who supported this, but they didn't. And there, there are some kind of technical reasons why they didn't, but the bill was changed. It passed this year. Now, Washington state is a very blue state. It's got a democratic legislature. It's got a democratic governor, Jay Inslee, who's running for president now. And what they enacted was a public benefit that would kick in as soon as you needed a high level of assistance. They have a slightly different test than private insurance has. It's actually the, their Medicaid test, but it's a high level of assistance. Once you require that high level of assistance, the government would pay a, a maximum of $36,500. So it's, it's this front-end benefit. You, you take it all probably in the first year or two. After that, you're on your own. So here's how the math works. This is, this is how this gets very interesting. So uh, remember, I, I said that half of people will never need long-term care, and half of people will, will never need a high level of long-term care, and half of people will. Among those people who need a high level of long-term care, about a third of them will just need a year or two. And about 15% of them will need more than five years. So if you do a public benefit that covers the front-end risk, that first $36,000, you're not protecting any of the 50% of people or you're not providing any benefits to the 50% of people who will not, who will not need this level of care but you'll be you will be providing benefits to the 50% of people who will need the care, to all of them, they'll receive some benefit. If you think about a catastrophic policy, what happens is you're only providing benefits to that relatively small number of people who need a lot of care for a long time. And that's why politicians are more attracted to the idea of a front-end benefit. The disadvantage to a front-end benefit is it's only $36,500 which just doesn't go very far in terms of providing somebody with a, a, a significant level of care. It may pay, I mean, for example, to take a dramatic example, if you're in a nursing home, $36,500 would pay for maybe four months of nursing home care. After that, you'd be out of money. What would you do? But for people who need some help at home for a few hours a day, that could, you know, that could help keep them at home for quite a while. For people who need a level of care for a few hours a day, that might be enough for, to take care of them for a couple of years. That's exactly right. But remember that somebody who only needs a couple of hours a day of care is somebody who probably doesn't have a very high level of need. Once you've kind of gotten this level of need where you need help with, you know, three activities of daily living, you need help bathing and going to the bathroom, particularly going to the bathroom. It gets to be complicated if you've only got an aide in the house for a couple of hours. Well, well, that's that that is certainly true. Although I've had some patients who were fairly dependent like that, you know, get by with somebody coming a few hours a day. I mean, they did have to wear like a, you know, it's certainly not ideal. But I was thinking about you know people with uh, memory and thinking problems. A certain number of them uh, can get by for a while with somebody coming in once a day for a few hours. Absolutely. You know, for for the meals and some companionship and, you know, safety check, or that can enable the spouse or somebody else to be out at work, right? Absolutely. That, that's, that's absolutely right. I mean, the, there's, there's no question that a benefit like that can be helpful to some people. And, you know, if, if, you, can, if you can have a, a home health aid or maybe use the, the, some of the money to, to install grab bars in the bathroom, which you can do under Washington state law, that could be extremely beneficial and can prevent a fall, which can be catastrophic for people. 
So absolutely, I'm not suggesting in any way that that, that benefit is not worthwhile. It, it absolutely is, but it's very limited. Right, right. And now in California, our, you know, Medicaid program does under certain circumstances allow family members to be paid for caring for a relative in need. Does this Washington program allow some of that money to be used to pay family members or it has to be other professionals or, or other types of services? You, you, can, uh, use, you can use the money to pay family members. The family members have to go through a training program uh, in order to be eligible to be paid. The other difference is I believe the California program is really a Medicaid program. It's really, uh, they, they pay family members if you are otherwise. Eligible. Oh, yeah, 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 right. yeah. So the Washington okay. State benefit, you don't, it's not a Medicaid program. Right. Anybody is eligible. Mm-hmm. So um, that's but, that's the but that benefit can be used to pay yes. family members. Absolutely, yes. And so, how is Washington funding this program? They also are funding it with a payroll tax. Washington State's a funny state because it doesn't have an income tax, so its sources of revenue are, are rather limited. Uh, but they also chose a payroll tax, and coincidentally, the payroll tax to pay for their front end uh, program uh, is almost exactly the same is the payroll tax that would have been required to pay for the catastrophic program that my organization helped design. Uh, it's in Washington State, it's about 0.58% uh, payroll tax. So again, for a median income uh, family, you're talking about a, a benefit or, or a tax of, you know, three, $400 a year. So it's, it's really not very much. It is a mandatory program. So anyone who works more than a minimal number of hours uh, is eligible is it has to pay into the into the program, and you're eligible uh, for the benefit. There are some limitations for the Washington program. For example, because you have to be working, and you have to be paying the premiums for a minimum of three years, that means that people who are currently retired would not be eligible for the benefit. Uh, it also means that people who don't work. So think about younger people with disabilities who are unable to work also are not eligible for the benefit. And people under 18 are not eligible for the benefit. Well, what so, about people who, uh, who aren't working, not because they're disabled, but, um, you know, women who are staying home with their children or something like that, which, you know, can be an economic choice in some absolutely, cases. Absolutely. So, you, so the, the rules are a little bit complicated, but you have to work either three years in a row or five years out of the last 10. So. For, for somebody who stays home, for example, to take care of children, she would still have an opportunity over the course of her, over the course of her working life to work enough to be eligible for uh, this, this benefit. And also in Washington State, the, you, you can work part-time and also be eligible for the benefit. It doesn't have to be a full-time job. So there, there are opportunities for uh, women, for example, who make a choice to stay home. There are opportunities for people with disabilities who can't work. But people with a high level of disability cannot work, would, would not be eligible for the benefit. And can current retirees buy into it? No, we'd have to go back to work. They would have to go back to work for three years. For three years. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, and so when did they pass this? They passed this just a couple months ago. So it's uh, probably too soon for us to know how it's going to work in practice. So they, they have to now write all the regulations. You know, this gets to be very complicated, but they, they now have to write all the regulations they hope that they will begin to collect the tax in 2020, so about a year. And the plan is for them to begin to provide the benefits in 2025. 
So they'll have five years where they'll be collecting, collecting what they call contributions, but it's really a tax. Whether we collect these tax for about five years, they'll put it in a trust fund and, and they'll use that trust fund to kind of build up the resources that we can begin to pay the benefits. So it's going to be five years from now before they even start paying benefits. And of course, many years after that before we know whether this program works. But it's a very interesting model and it's one that other states are looking at uh, uh, intently. Right, right. Well, I think it's it's great that they're trying it. And I feel like if you're, you know, if you're 70 and you retired recently, and you're starting to think ahead to, you know, what would be my options if in 10, 15 years, I needed help, you're, <laughs> this isn't going to help you. This is not going to help. This, this, this is, um, and they did this simply to save money. I mean, they'll, they'll acknowledge it. But this, this is a problem. This is a solution that is not going to help most baby boomers which is where the big problem is. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a little, um, I mean, I understand why they did it that way, but it's, uh, you know, this sort of highlights that often there's this, this lag time, right, when we implement certain types of, uh, of policies. Well, so let's talk about the other development and, you know, could this help current boomers, which uh, you alluded to earlier, which is that there have been some changes to Medicare regulations that might allow certain types of Medicare plans to offer some of this non-medical support. So tell us a bit about that. This is a really interesting uh, change in the law. So at the beginning of the conversation, we talked about how Medicare does not pay for long-term care, long-term supports and services. And since Medicare was created in 1965, with a few very limited exceptions, Medicare has never paid for these sorts of services. And if I understand right, they're in a way not allowed to pay for certain types of services, right? That's correct. That's, that's, the, the law is very specific. So uh, this is they, Medic, Medicare can pay only for, as a physician, you know, there, there are billing codes for Medicare, and you can only bill for what's what's a what's a Medicare billing code, and, and and nothing like transportation or meal delivery or grab bars is in any Medicare billing code. So it's it, it, they can't they can't bill for it at all. Right. Now, but Advantage plans have always the Medicare HMOs. They've always been able to offer a few extra things, you know, like the silver sneakers, gym memberships. Right. That's right. Or, or, dent, or, or dental benefits or eye exams. Or that's, what, that's right. So, so let me go back one step and, and, and just help, help, help the listeners understand. So Medicare is divided into two programs, uh, into, into two, sort of two, two pieces. There's traditional Medicare, which is the fee-for-service Medicare program. About two-thirds of Medicare beneficiaries are enrolled in traditional Medicare. Uh, if you have traditional Medicare, you have Medicare Part A, which is hospital insurance. You have Part B, which is insurance for uh, uh, doctor visits and certain tests and that sort of thing. You probably have Part D, which is the drug benefit. And then you may also have purchased a Medigap, a Medicare supplement policy. So that's everybody who's in the med traditional Medicare program. Then there is Medicare Advantage, which is Medicare Managed Care. It's been around in its current uh, incarnation for about eight years now. And about now, about a third of Medicare enrollees are in Medicare Advantage. Now, this is a, this is a program that is more popular in some places than others. In California, where, of course, you are, you are all very used to managed care, even for people in, in, uh, in uh, uh, working age. Uh, this is, a, this is a, a very popular program. It's something that people kind of slide right into. Uh, where I am on the East Coast, um, uh, Medicare Advantage is a little less popular, but it's, 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 it's growing somewhat in popularity. So Medicare Advantage plans, uh, the way they work 
is it's it's like a Kaiser plan or something like that. It's a it's a uh, generally a closed network. You can only go see the doctors that, that are in the plan. You can only go to the hospital that's in the plan. And you need pre-approval for the benefits. That's the, that's the downside for some people. The upside is the premiums are much lower. It's generally one-stop shopping, so you don't have to go buy a, 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 a Medigap policy. You don't have to go find yourself a Medicare Part D drug plan. It's usually all incorporated in one plan. And the other important piece about uh, Medicare Advantage is that, at least in some cases, there is some case management. So you can get somebody who can help coordinate your medical care. So that's, that's what Medicare Advantage has been. So last year, in 2018, two very interesting things happened. The first one was the Congress, which of course can't do much of anything these days, actually passed bipartisan legislation overwhelmingly in the House and the Senate which was called the Chronic Act. And it was, it was sponsored by a Republican senator and a Democratic senator, Senator Wyden from Oregon and Senator Isaacson uh, from uh, Georgia. And um, what they did was they said that for the first time, Medicare Advantage will be able to provide non-medical services to people with chronic conditions. And, and these are services like transportation and grab bars in the bathroom. Um, rides to physical therapy and, and all of those kinds of programs that are, that are so important to people that we've been talking about. A home health aid, even a personal care aid would be included in this. At the same time, the Trump administration also thought this was a really interesting idea and they proposed a set of regulations that also allowed some of this. The, the, the Chronic Act doesn't take effect until 2020, but the, the administration regulations actually allowed plans to begin offering this in 2019. So we, 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 this year, this plan year, we already see that a few hundred plans, and that's a, that's a small fraction of the total number of plans that are out there, but a few hundred of the plans are already offering this, this benefit. It's a very limited benefit at the moment, probably not offering more than 30 or $40 a month in, uh, in these supports and services, which is not much at all. But it is the beginning of what's going to be a very interesting experiment. Plans are offering these in some states. They are offering different benefits in different states. They're branding them in different ways. If you talk to the plans, they see this very much as an experiment. They don't know how it's going to work. And, and it is based on a theory that I think is correct. And I'd be interested in knowing from your experience whether you think it's correct as well. And here's the theory. Remember, a, a Medicare Advantage plan, a managed care plan, is at risk. It's fully responsible for the costs of the care of its members. It gets paid. The federal government pays the plans what they call a per-member, per-month fee, a flat fee for every person who's enrolled in the plan. If that insurance company or nonprofit, there are some nonprofits that do this, but if that insurance company or the nonprofit can provide care to its enrollees for less than it's paid by the government in those per member per month fee, it gets to keep the difference. It can take some of that and roll it back into other benefits and it keeps some of it as profit. If on the other hand, care of those patients is more than the federal government pays them, they're on the hook. They have to pay those additional costs. So it is in the interest of the plan 
to reduce your healthcare costs. And for many, when you're talking about older adults with chronic conditions, what you're really talking about is keeping them out of the emergency department, keeping them out of the hospital, and keeping them out of a skilled nursing facility. So here's the theory. If I'm a Medicare Advantage and I spend my money on supports and services, will the money I spend for those supports be less than the money I would have had to spend for medical care for those people? Or to put it, put it another way, if I can keep somebody healthy with supports and services and I can keep them out of the hospital, they're doing better, it's good for them, and it's good for me. What we don't know, we have some anecdotal evidence, but we don't really have a lot of really robust research. We don't know for sure that providing these supports and services really will reduce medical costs for people. We think it's true, for example, with home delivered meals. That's pretty good research about that. But other things like transportation, we just don't know because the research isn't there. Yeah. Well, I think uh, historically, you know, what's been done with these kinds of programs is they end up being restricted to people who are already identified as um, who, who either have already been identified as high utilizers, right? People who have already gone several times to the hospital or emergency room or, or otherwise, you know, have risk factors that that identify them as extremely likely to become a high utilizer. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what, you know, we've often seen is that they end up restricting the extra help to to people like that. And and I think right now we have in some areas these um, advanced illness management programs. Mm-hmm. You know, they're kind of like pre-hospice. Right. And they're not available everywhere, and they seem to mostly focus on, you know, the people who've been going to the emergency room a lot. So my guess is that they'll eventually end up restricting it just to certain people, but you never know. So what, what, what they're doing is the, the other big change that they've made is they've said to the plans that you know, right now, b- before the, the, the changes in the law, a, a plan had to offer the same benefits to all of its enrollees. And that made it, it was kind of a waste of money for the plans. It was providing benefits or at least offering benefits to people who weren't, didn't really need them. Mm-hmm. What the new law says is you can tailor those benefits. So you can provide those benefits that are highly targeted to people. So if, for example, you have some of your enrollees in your Medicare Advantage plan, and what they need is transportation. That means you can provide them the transportation. You don't have to offer transportation to everybody. And that makes it much more cost-effective to do it. On the other hand, it creates the problem you just identified. So how do you make this work? One of the, one of the, the issues that I've been spending a lot of time on is, is and I'll, I'll, I'll put my bias out there. I, I think that this idea has tremendous potential. Oh, I agree. But it has, to, it has to work correctly. And one of the things they need to do is they need to get the quality measures right. The tendency now with plans, Medicare, Medicare has all of these quality measures that they impose on health plans. But the quality measures are nearly all measures that were taken from hospital care. So what they do is they count things that are easy to count. How many falls did you have? How many infections did you have? And I'm not suggesting those are important things to count, but as you well know, when it comes to, you know, people with chronic conditions who are living at home, it's not just about falls and infections. It's about quality of life. 
Yes. Well, also falls and infections are going to be harder to count in the home than in the hospital. That's, that's exactly right. That's it. That, <laughs> they well, often end up counting whatever they can count in the environment. Uh, and, and that's exactly right. And, and, and of course, it's the old cliche, right? What's important? What's important is what you can count. But in this case, what they really need to do is they really need to figure out a way to, to measure quality of life, to, to measure Remember I said at the very beginning of this conversation, you know, what's, when you're asking me what long-term care is, and long-term care is, is the supports and services you need to, to have the best possible quality of life you can in what may be a very difficult time in your life. So how do you measure that? And you know, they, they look at things like patient satisfaction, which is another thing that they've kind of taken from the hospital world. Patient satisfaction tells a little bit of the story, but it doesn't tell a lot of the story. So they need to figure out ways to, 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 to really get to this and it's not easy. Well, separate from quality of, of life, they could also, I suppose, try to measure just, uh, you know, again, function and ability, right? Mm-hmm. right? Which is not the same thing, but often people are able to maintain their abilities for longer mm-hmm. or, or if it slows the decline in their abilities and their need for help, then that's certainly a hugely valuable thing that, that many people will value, even if it's not exactly the same as uh, their quality of life. That's right. So, so for example, you know, could, could you get up and walk across the room? You know, could you get up and get walk across the room before whatever intervention you were getting? And could you get up and walk across the room after? Or has it at least maintained your ability to walk across the room? I think you're right. I think you can, those are the kinds of things that you can begin to measure and, and they, you put them together and you can tell a really interesting story. Yeah. Um, well, I'm also thinking about this study, which uh, which you wrote about, actually. I just found your your article on it. But, you know, the, the CAPABLE study, absolutely. the Community Aging in Place Advancing Better Living for Elders, which was that, that study where a team from John Hopkins, they would visit older adults who lived at home and needed some help with some of those daily living tasks and kind of interview them and make an assessment of what kinds of um, help and changes they needed in the home. And, and they would provide a nurse, an occupational therapist, and I think really critically, a handyman, you know, yep. to make those adjustments in the home, to make the house more manageable for the older person, given their whatever limitations that they had, and um, that it did improve outcomes for the, the participants who were involved, including actually needing um, less help by the end. That's right. It, 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 there, there are a number of interesting uh, uh, outcomes that they were able to measure. Some, some of them were the standard things, you know, fewer emergency department visits, fewer hospitalizations, shorter hospitalizations, all of that. That's great. But they also were able to measure uh, depression. And they discovered that, uh, that, that, that there was less depression. So th- th- those are the kinds of things I think that you can begin to look at that can have real benefits and, and capable is a terrific example of this. Yeah. Do you think any of these advantage plans might integrate something like that? Absolutely. And in fact, in because fact, this rule would allow them to, right? That's right. In fact, managed care um, plans, uh, for example, a, a Kaiser uh, managed care plan in Colorado uh, is doing this, not Medicare advantage, but just managed care in general. Mm-hmm. So, um, because this is not, this, this kind of a program is not just for older people. This is a program that could actually help younger people with disabilities. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, the, the managed care plans actually are adopting capable quite rapidly. And interestingly enough, Sarah Zanton, who is the person at Johns Hopkins School of Nursing who developed this program, was testifying just a few weeks ago to Medicare to try to make capable a Medicare benefit. 
So oh, it's good. available to people who are in fee-for-service Medicaid. So that's the kind of a program we actually do have some evidence. They, they did a very robust trial where they, you know, they, they had people who were in the program and people just like them who were not in the program and they were able to determine that this really does help. So um, there, there are programs like that and, and, and we can, we do have evidence that they help with broadly defined quality of life. The trick is to incorporate those, to, first of all, to invent them and then to incorporate them as much as we can into uh, these managed care programs. Right, right. Well, we do have a number, you know, within geriatrics and gerontology, we have a number of of clinically tested programs that have been shown to improve, you know, outcomes that we think matter to older adults and families. And so I think often that, you know, the question has just been figuring out the arrangement so that it becomes worthwhile mm-hmm. for the insurers or the big providers to start offering them to, to more people. So I think this is really promising, this change in Medicare Advantage. And it also sounds like, um, you know, as we were saying for current boomers, that that has more potential to provide some help with these late life needs than a new public long-term care insurance plan, which right now there's just one in Washington, maybe other states will follow, and it's likely to require a long lead time before people get benefits. So, So I think this is promising. And so in closing, maybe we can actually, you know, you were saying that that uh, Sarah Santon was testifying before Congress, but you know we're not yet in an election year, but the Democratic primary is starting to really get going. And so, are these issues of concern, you know, to boomers concerned about their aging or their aging parents? Are these issues like coverage for long-term care needs or supporting family caregivers? Are you seeing this come up in the candidates' policies or what they're talking about or the debates? Well, Leslie, I listened. I listened to the debates. Uh, heaven help me, but I did, mm-hmm. and uh, never came up. Uh, oh, okay. But 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 I will tell you that I have gotten calls from a couple of uh, representatives, from representatives of a couple of candidates, who have expressed some interest in learning about this issue. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of Democratic members of Congress. Uh, the chairman of the committee in the House, the Energy and Commerce Committee that has jurisdiction over healthcare issues, uh, a congressman named Frank Pallone from New Jersey, who has actually introduced a long-term care financing bill, and the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, Richie Neal from Massachusetts, who has sent out a letter asking for suggestions for how he might propose a long-term care insurance bill. And his is kind of an interesting one because what he wants to do is add a long-term care benefit to Medigap insurance. So we've been talking about Medicare Advantage for those people who are in Medicare Advantage care. He's talking about what about that Medigap insurance, that Medicare supplement insurance for people who are in uh, traditional Medicare? What if there was a long-term care benefit in that? There's some interest there. And then perhaps to people's surprise, the Trump administration actually has an interagency task force that is looking at ways to make private long-term care insurance more affordable and a better product. They're not going to do a public benefit, of course, but they are looking at ways to improve uh, private long-term care insurance. So there's a little bit of movement, but you know, I kind of wonder about the voters, because I feel like to a certain extent what the, you know, what the candidates talk about reflects what they what either the voters are asking about or what they're polling sort of indicates is of concern to the voters. And we know that older adults 
vote in higher proportions than younger ones. And so is this just not something that older voters care to ask their candidates about? Let me answer by talking about one, one thing that's going to sound like a digression, that it's, but it's not. So bear with me for just a second. The, the, there's another debate going on in Washington, which is over family leave. It, mo most times when you talk to politicians about family leave, what they really mean is parental leave. Your time off after you have a baby or After you have a child. baby or adopt a child, exactly. Or possibly if your child is very sick. Correct. But when you say to them, what about family leave? What about leave to take care of a frail parent or a frail spouse or a frail sibling? What about that? And, and, and then you get, kind of get this long pause. So what's going on here? And, and this is, gets to answer your question. Like, what's going on here? Moms and babies are really effective. You know, uh, moms are great lobbyists, right? And, and many members of Congress have been parents. They've had this experience. They understand what it's like to have to take time off from work and, 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 and take care of a newborn. So it's kind of, it's something that comes easy, more easily to them. Um, when it comes to older adults, so older, you're right, older people in general vote, but not very frail old people. They don't vote. They can't get out of the house. They, don't, they, they can't get to the bathroom. They're, not gonna, they're not, probably not going to vote. They're certainly not going to go to a town meeting. So who is there to represent them? Well, maybe they're adult children who are their caregivers. But the problem is that if you're a, if you're a caregiver to a frail parent, you don't have time. You're trying, to you're trying to manage your job and maybe your kids and, and, and mom's crisis of the day. And, and the last thing you've got time to do is go testify before the state legislature about why what's going on is important to say nothing about coming to Washington and testifying to Congress. And so if you're, if you're 70, if you're a boomer who's 70 and in relatively good health, you're just not thinking about this yet. You're not thinking about it yet. And the other thing that tends to happen is so, so now let's say that you are that caregiver and you have just gone through this experience of caring for mom for three years and mom died. Now you have time, but what I discovered is they don't want to relive that experience. Some do. I mean, some really want to talk about it, but most of them want to move on. And, and the last thing they want to do is imagine themselves in the same situation 10 years from now that mom was in. They don't want to think about that. And the last thing they want to do is go talk to some politician about it. So older adults tend to be really bad advocates. And um, I, they, they need to get better at it. They yeah. Really yeah, I wish it would change because I, I, you know, when these issues come up, I can see how it's a, such a huge issue for an older person's quality of life, for their family's quality of life. People are really scrambling to get help meeting these needs. They're like, what? There's no program to help us with this. Yeah, yeah, right. And and I'm like, no. And, you know, it's partly that, like, we know some things that work and we, you know, they just still are not getting implemented because for some strange reason, even though, you know, depending on how you count them, there's 30 to 50 million people helping an older person. Somehow it does not end up on the radar of the political conversations very often. Well, Howard, hopefully this will, uh, for those listening, <laughs> you know, I would say ask questions about this at the town hall, Absolutely. you know, about family leave that covers helping an older relative and about what, the, I wonder what Elizabeth Warren, she seems to have a plan for everything. 
Not I'm this. Go, not not this. Have you not have yet. you looked at her website? She doesn't have a plan for this. Not for long term care. Not right. yet. Well, um, is, is, we should is, write to her. As far as I know, um, not a single candidate has an explicit plan for long-term care. Now, I will say- What about just better things for aging people, (laughs) like a better aging society? That's right. Absolutely. So I will say, in fairness, I I should say, in in, in fairness, Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan does include some kind of long-term care benefit. Uh, it's, It's very vague, exactly what- what would trigger the benefit, who would be eligible, what the benefit would be, is all unclear. But he did include a, a section about uh, long-term care in his Medicare for All. Okay, well, at least so there's that. There's, there's that. Yes. Well, so in closing, we should finish with some, some final tips for the listeners. So any last take-home suggestions, favorite resources, or key points for our listeners who are interested in this issue of how to, uh, how to cover the financially cover um, these kinds of services should they become necessary for yourself or for an older loved one? The advice I have for people first is to sit down and think about what is likely going to cost you for long-term care and for medical care in your old age. And the answer to that is probably more than $300,000 when you add up for a couple. When you add up for a couple, the need for long-term care and for medical care, the Medicare does not pay for. It's going to cost you somewhere between two dollars and $300,000 on average. So the first thing you need to do, particularly if you're in your 30s or 40s or maybe even 50s, is think about whether or not you have that. And if you don't have it, what you're going to do to get it between now and the time you retire. The next thing you need to do is you need to talk. Families have to have this conversation. I know talking about old age is hard and talking about money is hard and talking about money and old age at the same time is really hard, but it's critical to have this conversation. Older adults need to talk to their adult children about what resources are available, what kind of a setting they want to have their care, where they want to live, all of those issues, I think, are critical. And the only way you can really begin to think about these things and begin to address them is to talk about them honestly. So you need to do that. Always ask me, should I buy long-term care insurance? And the answer, unfortunately, is it depends. It's probably the topic for another, another episode, but it really does depend. You know, do you have enough money to self-insure? How important is you to leave money to your children? Uh, you know, are your children, if, you know, if your daughter's a doctor and your son is a lawyer, you probably don't need to leave them very much money. If on the other hand, your daughter's a poet and your son's a, a musician, maybe you do. You know, what's their financial situation? Uh, what's your family medical history? You need to go through all of those questions to figure out whether or not you can afford to pay for long-term care. Uh, you need to recognize the fact that Medicare, with the exception of this, this, this narrow program we've just been talking about, generally doesn't pay for this. Uh, And while Medicaid does, you really don't want to be on Medicaid long-term care. It's really not a very good life. So I I think that those are the kinds of things you need to begin to think about and talk about uh, in order to to kind of confront this and begin to take control of this. Mm -hmm. Now, I know online there, uh, there are a couple of websites that offer kind of conversation guides to help people address medical advanced care planning. Do you know of any good 
online resources to provide a kind of conversation guide for this kind of financial planning for late life? No, I don't. All right. It's a really good idea. We should do that. We should start that. Someone should do that. Okay. (laughs) And Um, um, I guess to add to your suggestions, I would, I would tell, you know, for our listeners, I highly recommend Howard's column for keeping up on this because I think we need, you know, more people to be paying attention and understanding this. And that creates the foundation for, for asking, for asking our communities and our elected officials to address this. I mean, it seems to me that this is not going to be solved by private insurance companies and that it's something that as a society we could do better with. So I would recommend your column, Howard. And then also it sounds like people can start asking when they're looking at Medicare Advantage plans this fall to see if there is any of this coverage for non-medical needs and to support that. That's going to help it grow whether or not you use it. And uh, then if you're at a town hall with the candidates, ask them. (laughs) Absolutely. Ask them. You know, re- remind them how important an issue this is for people and ask them what they're going to do about it. Great. Okay. And don't count on Medicare to, to bail you out right now because Medicare, no. for the most part, does not cover that unless you end up in one of these Advantage plans. Well, Howard, this has, again, been wonderful to hear from you. So informative. Thank you so very much for joining me today and for continuing to do this work. Well, thank you. It's, a, it's always a pleasure to talk to you and uh, uh, let's do it again soon. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes, And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.